Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We've come a long way, you know, because I remember the night when this happened to me and I ended up getting charged, you know, and now we're in a situation where an officer has been held accountable to, to, to some extent. In the wake of the Floyd death, people have risen and protested, but change doesn't simply happen by protest, it happens by action. Defonte Miller and Julian Falconer, Mr. Falconer, Mr. Miller's lawyer, Friday Ontario Superior Court Justice Joseph DeLuca decided Toronto Police Officer Michael Terrio to be guilty of assault, but not guilty of aggravated assault, and his brother Christian not guilty of all charges against him. In the violent incident between the brothers and DeFonte Miller, a black man who lost his eye in the confrontation. Now, Michael Terrio is a Toronto police officer who was off duty at the time of the incident. We're joined by Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor and professor at Simon Fraser University, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, and uh, Jeff Manishin, who is also a former prosecutor, now criminal law specialist in Hamilton. He's represented clients in some of the most highly profiled criminal cases in this country. We like to go to Scott and Jeff uh, for major cases that are talked about in this country, and this certainly is the case. Uh, gentlemen, thank you for the time. Uh, firstly, the fact that Canadian court would deliver a significant ruling watched carefully across the country and by more than 20,000 on YouTube how do you interpret this, as, and is it simply a manifestation of the pandemic, or might this have option and legs to be repeated? Let me start with you, Jeff. I think that's a great question, Roy, and, and I think you're right. I think it may well illustrate a real change in our justice system. For many years, uh, the Courts of Justice Act in Ontario and in other places have prevented the media from coming in and covering in live fashion, television, radio, or otherwise, um, uh, trial proceedings. And uh, there have been public inquiries that have been covered that way. In a case in Alberta, I think uh, within the last year or two, a judge gave his reasons and they wound up being broadcast. But to actually be able to sit in your office or your home and see the parties and watch and listen to a judge giving his reasons for judgment via YouTube, I think this is a, a, an indication of things to come. And it, I think what it does is it informs the public. Remember, the courtrooms are supposed to be open to the public, but most people can't get there. This way they can. Yeah, Scott, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the, the first one was that, uh, as Jeff mentioned, this, the only other time I can recall this was uh, that case in Alberta, with the big difference being the, uh, the judge in Alberta actually misstated the law, which was rather embarrassing. Uh, I didn't watch the video, but from what I've read of it, this appears to be an, a really good manifestation of a complicated case, but that is dealt with by the where the facts are determined by the trial judge who supports that by evidence. And it's, it certainly appears in this judgment that the, uh, the judge went through this in meticulous detail, which is what uh, led to his findings on the different charges. Um, and some of the commentary I've seen uh, from uh, defense lawyers as well, too, has said that, you know, while they can understand people may, uh, you know, question even some of the rulings, that they were very carefully reached by this uh, judge in going over the evidence in detail. Now, there's a lot of question, uh, as you know, that a lot of questions being asked. I'm just saying on the issue of the availability of the justice system to Canadians, we've been calling for that for a great deal of time and hoping that Canadians would become more engaged with justice. 
and and our justice system and societal issues. And now if the courts are available in this manner, more in, in, in an increased manner themselves, I think it creates the dynamic for people to really just monitor and become aware, more aware of what's happening in, uh, in our justice system in this country. Scott, let me stay with you for a second. What is your assessment of the decision by Justice Joseph DeLuca? Well, um, as I say, I think the most important thing is that it is appropriately uh, based on the findings of fact made by the judge, which is based on the evidence that was uh, called at the trial. And that appears to be the case, including sort of his weaving the way through the complexity of the different issues, like whether or not there are, and they are um, legally recognized defenses in terms of things like self-defense, protection of property, but he very carefully also analyzes all the facts to see whether those defenses apply or don't apply, depending on the circumstances of what's going on. So I think the... um, And what I found very interesting as well, too, is that uh, the judge confirmed and made it as a finding of fact that this individual, uh, DeFonte uh, Miller, um, who had claimed uh, seemingly in court and under oath that he was just walking down the street with a couple of friends of his, that that was a lie, and that, in fact, he and his two friends were what they call car hopping, breaking into cars and stealing things, which is what prompted the intervention of the the two accused, Constable Terrio and his uh, brother Christian, because they heard some noise, went outside, and saw that their parents' car was being broken into. So I think it's a very... And it's what happened after that that then forms the basis of the of the trial. Um, but I think it's just a, an insight into the um, very pragmatic, very fact-based analysis that this judge uh, went through in this uh, particular uh, ruling. All right. Now, Jeff, taking that same question and then adding a couple of component parts to it, your assessment of the decision by Justice DeLuca and there's a question about Michael Terrio should have identified himself as a police officer immediately or earlier. And there are protests and have been protests and calls that the court decision were simply a continuation of systemic racism. What do you say? Um, number one, and, and I'll qualify by saying I know Justice DeLuca. I knew him when he practiced. And in fact, he and I were both uh, amongst the counsel who appeared on the Gouge Inquiry. So he's a friend. And he's an, he's, he was an excellent lawyer. He's an excellent judge. Number one, it's not an issue of systemic racism at all in terms of his ruling. And we'd go further and say this. He didn't purport to get into discussion on the systemic racism aspect. While he was not impressed with the claim by Terrio that all he was doing was looking to arrest the person, the problem was, as Scott points out, he did have a basis to seek to apprehend him. He did reject the evidence of Mr. Miller in a host of ways. He found that the initial stages of the confrontation may well have involved Miller having the pipe and Terrio hitting him in the eye with his fists and using fists to be able to defend himself from someone with a pipe, and that he found that was very likely when the major assault to the eye occurred. That's how we get to the finding of not guilty of aggravated assault. When Terrio then continues to use force at the door, that's how we find it to be unlawful. Could not be connected to carry an arrest at that stage. That's where the conviction came in. Scott, do you expect there's going to be an appeal? Um, No, I don't. um, But I, I do want to just add... I, one, th- one thing that I saw that I thought was uh, curious, and I did a little uh, looking around, uh, was the, um, uh, the fact that there were both of the brothers were charged with obstruction of justice, I gather, by uh, giving somebody decided that they had given uh, false statements. I don't know whether they were 
misleading or whether they neglected to include information like the possession of the pipe, both of those uh, were actually uh, dropped. And there's uh, been some questions, and I think potentially legitimate questions, asked about why neither the Durham police or the Toronto police uh, referred the incident uh, to the uh, Special Investigations Unit, which, as I understand it, does have jurisdiction even with an off-duty officer. And it was only when uh, Mr. Faulkner, who's a pretty sharp guy, uh, made a complaint to the SIU himself that that's what prompted it. And equally, and this is something I also have a question about, the uh, this guy... Um, who was uh, doing the uh, the break enters to the cars, uh, Defonte Miller, uh, he was originally charged with uh, theft, I think possession of stolen property, uh, I think he had some marijuana on him. All those charges were withdrawn. I wouldn't um, be surprised, Scott, if that occurred as a result of the, the incident and the force used on him, but I did see the part of the judge's reasons, and the, the obstruct charges were based on the two brothers initially not saying anything about Michael Terrio having had the pipe at any stage, okay. and then two weeks later, Christian came in, did a full interview, a long full interview, and said nothing about Mike, Michael with the pipe, and the judge was inclined to think that certainly there were clear false statements there, but he just was not satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that those statements constituted obstruct justice. And am I correct that the uh, the basis would have been the Crown's decision that the prosecution was not in the public interest? No, no, no. The judge acquitted on those. No, oh, sorry, sorry. I mean uh, the charges against Miller. Miller. I, I, I don't know the basis, but I would say so. It's not uncommon when you see situations in which somebody charged with an offense has received some significant injuries during the course of his arrest, that while he may be charged initially, that those charges, it's not un- it does happen that those charges... Yeah, it does. Okay, I have to Although take a break. Is, you know, it is worth keeping in mind here that this guy did suffer horrific injuries, yeah. uh, but, um, you know, contrary to, I think, what some of the, uh, the mob uh, comments are, is that uh, they weren't he didn't get them inflicted on him simply because of his race, but rather because he was committing crimes. Okay, and okay guys, I have to take a break here. I don't have much time. So, uh, Jeff, let me ask you the same question I asked. Scott, do you expect there's going to be an appeal or not? Um, I, I wouldn't say it's all that likely. It's the kind of thing that certainly the Crown will re- Crown's office will review carefully to see right. if there's any, there's any error of law. But, Roy, when you have findings of credibility yeah. that are adverse to the main witness, um, it makes it difficult to appeal. How do you expect, and I'll start with you, Scott, as a former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, how do you expect policing to change in this country? You know there are calls to defund police here. How do you expect things to change? I think there actually will be changes uh, on the horizon. I just wrote a piece of frontline security on it that's coming out. Number one, very quickly, I think there's going to be some steps taken uh, to improve, shall we say, police review and accountability because I think a lot of these cases have demonstrated flaws in that. Uh, Number two, I think you will actually see some uh, transfer of responsibilities away from police on their interactions with mental health drug people that will result in potentially some transfer of uh, funding, keeping in mind, of course, that this was something the police didn't ask for. They were asked to do it because of failure by those uh, non-law enforcement agencies. I think you can see some operational changes like deployment of body cameras, which is a good idea. But trust me, it's complicated. We need to make sure we get it right. I think you will see some reviews of the use of force training modules for police because they're based on, it's known as the IMIM model, they're based on controlling all situations. And I think that is something that has demonstrated as though it is uh, a part of what some of the, uh, the failures have been. And finally, I think you're going to potentially see some reorganization 
of policing mandates, including with the RCMP and with respect to First Nations. You may see an increase in First Nation policing. There are increasing calls, actually, uh, for uh, the RCMP to uh, withdraw from contract policing and uh, stick to the uh, unique federal duties of federal policing. So I think uh, we are in for some significant uh, change in this uh, area, and um, it's something to keep a close eye on. Just want to remind that yesterday on the show, we spoke with uh, the superintendent who's in charge of the uh, RCMP detachment in Kamloops, British Columbia, as well as an official with the city of Kamloops. They have what they call the CAR 40 program. And if they get a call that involves a mental health concern and or drug concern, the police officer, the RCMP officer goes out, but goes out with a mental health specialist. So they go out together. There's another program in Vancouver. I think it's called Car 87, and there are some cities in in Canada where they have that. Not all, just a just a sounds like an absolutely sensible idea that should be right across the country. Jeff, what do you see as far as potential change in Canada's policing is concerned? I think the biggest word I would use is scrutiny, and it's picking up on what Scott says. I should say I tend to prefer to use the the phrase or to characterize those people that are concerned as the public. And I wouldn't use the word the mob. I would say there are a lot of people who would say we have a situation where a young black guy has an interaction with two white men and one is an off-duty police officer and he winds up with serious injuries. They wind up with nothing. And is it at all investigated by police services called upon to investigate it? Sure, charging him without any meaningful investigation of them, as Scott indicated earlier. So oversight of police from the standpoint of accountability would go a long ways towards restoring the public confidence in what the police are doing. So we're going to see it from the standpoint of a review of how much of their budget goes to enforcement as opposed to community programming. We're going to see it, though, from the standpoint of more meaningful consequences in the sense of a serious attention to be paid when there's reason to believe there's been excessive force used, when there's reason to believe there's been racial profiling involved, We're going to have to have a change, philosophical and practical, where police officers who are engaged in conduct are not going to be consigned to, well, it's just a few bad apples. If we see enough of those, we have to have systemic changes in police services. If you have situations where judges make rulings against police, finding they're responsible for acts of racial profiling and ruling evidence out, there has to be some way for the service to be able to keep track of that. And another area, and it's one that's mentioned from time to time, is the responsibility of other officers to intervene if they see excessive use of force and properly document and report it. The issue of use of force training is one Scott has raised, and boy, it continues to be a challenge because I feel for officers who find themselves in life-threatening situations, but to be able to find all other measures shy of deadly force being used, and those sorts of measures have to be better trained than than we've seen already. On the mental health front, certainly we have teams, mobile support teams. We do in Hamilton, we do elsewhere. Do we want to see a greater use of that? Sure. If you don't have a situation of an individual who has any kind of weapon, you want to lead off with the mental health and, and, uh, and social workers and others before police need to get involved. You're still going to need to see police involved if there's a risk for public safety. So Scott, do you have things, a sense? It do you have a sense? down to enhance scrutiny and okay. accountability. Those are the key phrases I'd say. Scott, do you have a sense that police, let's talk about the, uh, the, the, the police officer on the street. So the Canadian Police Association uh, represents those officers. Do you have a sense that they will be glad that this sort of initiative is underway? As long as it's fact-based, I think there will be a, um, um, you know, they'll want to participate and deal with some of the ideas that Jeff and I are talking about and some of the issues as well, too. But so that it's, you know, fact-based as opposed to, um, 
politically based. And that will be, I think, the, uh, the biggest issue that will, uh, will come in. The uh, House uh, Public Safety Committee is actually uh, just going to get into looking at some of those. I was asked for some input on it and provided some suggestions. And as I can say, those are exactly the kinds of suggestions I made, is look at the things that are factually relevant uh, and not simply politically correct. And you know what? That was even referenced in the, uh, the decision of the case we're talking about because the judge said, my task is not to deliver the verdict most clamored for. Trials are based on evidence and not public opinion. And slightly different. All right, gentlemen, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I literally have 15 seconds here and I've got to go. So we'll do this again. Thank you for the time today. Jeff Manish and Scott Newark. Thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Roy. Good chatting, Scott. Bye bye. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.